Hello, and welcome to CAA Conversations. Today, I'm with Sarah Sharp and Meredith Starr, and they'll be talking about teaching technological fluidity, integrating multidisciplinary artistic and research practices into the classroom. Sarah G. Sharp is an artist and curator whose interests include alternative social histories, language, place, technology, and craft. She is an assistant professor and foundations area coordinator in the visual arts department at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and teaches in the MFA in art practice program at SVA in New York. She lives and works in Brooklyn and Baltimore. Meredith Starr's artwork is based on data she observes in her personal life and an investigation of social issues. She fuses science with artifacts of our humanity, exploring themes such as desire, memory, identity politics, and ecology. She is an assistant professor of visual arts at SUNY Suffolk County Community College and is regional coordinator for the FATE organization. She lives and works in New York. Welcome. Hi. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think we were just planning to start off with talking about how we know each other. Um, Meredith and I, you know, Meredith, I was thinking, I think we actually met through um, a project. I, I produced a project called the Toolbook Project, where I make one publication a year and I often do an open call for it. And Meredith responded to that open call um, and she was in the first Toolbook, and then, which we'll talk about a little bit more, um, I think, um, in the podcast. And then we figured out that we were both um, part of FATE, which is... Um, uh, foundations organization and uh, we both were have art practices that are centered in New York and um, we teach in colleges that in universities that are not in very urban centers and we realized we just have a lot in common. I think that's pretty much our origin story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I felt fortuitous to meet Sarah when we did Toolbook because it was right after the 2016 election when I think most artists were feeling eager to respond to and have a voice um, in the current political climate and connecting with Sarah on that and recognizing that she was a like-minded peer who was not only interested in that in her own artistic practice, um, but also incorporating that into the classroom, it sort of became this common bond and thread for the two of us in our work and friendship. Yeah, and the, I'll just quickly say that the, I started the Tilder Project right after the election as a way for um, artists to kind of connect with each other, but to also be able to keep working with the practices they were you know, the sort of ways of making that they were already involved in and um, raise funds for nonprofits that already exist that are doing amazing work that um, I felt might be threatened under the current administration. So we make a publication once a year. There's a bunch of events where artists get to read. Meredith participated in those. Um, we have like readings and presentations of projects and panel discussions. And then the publication is sold to benefit a specific nonprofit. So the current one called Workbook, which I just put out, donates funds to Make the Road New York, which um, is a sort of multi-platform organization that helps uh, immigrants in a bunch of different ways um, in New York. And they and then it also gives funds to an um, organization called House of Ruth in Maryland, which... Um, 
helps people, um, mostly women who are dealing with the fallout of domestic and intimate partner violence. So, and I, because I teach in Baltimore and I also live in New York part-time, so I'm trying to kind of work with organizations in both of those communities. So Meredith was part of the first one and um, that's exactly what I was trying to respond to um, that particular moment after the election um, in 2016. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, you reminding me about the event with the reading took place at Soho 20, which is where you were doing a residency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just this idea in general that both you and I are part of um, artist collectives such as that mm-hmm. in the city. Um, we're not part of the commercial gallery system, but rather these community based artist centric um, collectives. And, and I feel like that just sort of, uh, you know, further reiterates the theme of, you know, participating within the community and community outreach, both as practicing artists and educators. Yeah, and I think also spaces where we, um, we both have very multidisciplinary practices where we work back and forth, like in really analog ways and deal with kind of techno culture and actual like sort of technological processes. And I think those spaces let you experiment in a way that um, maybe uh, the commercial system might not work for our practices in that specific way. Um, We were talking a little bit about some of the places where we think our work, our projects kind of link or correspond with each other. Yeah. Um, It's always exciting for me when I see Sarah's work. and I rolled through her studio uh, last year's Bushwick Open Studios. Um, some of your projects that are really meaningful to me are your Whole Earth Project and your Finding Our Place in Space. I think there's such great examples of the importance of research um, and responding to you know concrete um, patterns that already exist that we can sort of appropriate and re-envision um, and sort of add to and complicate. And even just visually, um, some of my projects, like Tell Me Your Love Story, um, mm-hmm. also connect to NASA missions. Um, but visually, um, you know, you're, you're working in denim. Um, yeah. with denim, And I'm working with um, the blue of cyanotypes. So there's a little mm-hmm. bit of visual um, continuity between our work, but also this um, interest in the planet. Um, yeah. Celestial. And, and I also think just kind of like translating, I, I sort of said this before, like between these sort of analog and then um, technologically mediated forms, um, the whole earth project and finding our place in space and the current project I'm working on called kinship all come from a, um, they started with, uh, interest in kind of working backwards from our current sort of uh, media landscape, thinking back, you know, sort of thinking back through how people connected through analog means. And I was doing a lot of research in like um, uh, archives from the 60s and 70s of uh, analog, you know, newsletters. Um, I The Whole Earth Project is based on the Whole Earth Catalog, which was this catalog that was published um, in the 60s and 70s and was a way to kind of disseminate a certain set of information, but also a way to produce a kind of um, non-localized community 
Um, so then I kind of translate media I found from the Whole Earth Catalog and in um, Finding Our Place in Space, it's, uh, I use the minutes from uh, the founding of the Oregon Women's Land um, and combine that with images from NASA because both of both um, the sort of search for life on Mars and the founding of these intentional communities here on Earth were happening at the same time in the mid 70s. So, and Meredith, in um, Tell Me Your Love Story, you're taking audio recordings of people sort of telling their love stories and then you're translating them into waveforms, which are like the core of the audio. So you're kind of taking this data, but then you're making this deeply analog print, the cyanotype. And yeah. um, in Whole Earth Project, I, um, the Whole Earth Systems Project, I take all this kind of found media and then turn it into um embroidered work on denim uh so like we're both kind of i think that's a kind of interesting uh point of connection um in our work where we're thinking about technology in culture but sometimes our final product is very analog absolutely yeah there's so much that happens with the technology behind the scenes even um more recently in the project um translating them instead of waveform into spectrograph um, because I felt like they reference landscape and thinking about communicating with um, other beings beyond our planet and um, what is on the golden record, which was the original um, media that was contained on NASA's Voyager mission and what that looked like and what would we want it to look like now in 2019 oh. and um, you know, how we think about conveying feelings now. And I, I like this idea of um, it even referencing something that looked like landscape that um, rep representative of our planet or Mars or some other planet we have yet to discover. Can you say what a spectrograph is? So, a, so when you look at waveform, um, those, that's your traditional, like you can picture even when you um, call up Siri <laughs> and it, it looks like uh -huh. um, it's running across the screen. And a spectrograph um, pulls out the nuance in your, um, in your voice. So not like tone and frequency. Um, uh -huh. So it radiates a little more across like the digital screen. It really looks like canyons, um, like peaks and valleys and canyons. And it, it fills in the, it's a little more pixelated um, and it fills in more of the sound. So it looks less like waveform and more like mountains. Um, I, I think like the next, you know, our next kind of question might be like, how do we get these kind of multidisciplinary practices into the classroom and what are our student populations? Like, I think, our particular challenge, part of it is that we often teach first year students, Yes. Um, right? So we're not necessarily getting students that have, and we also don't teach at art schools, we teach at um, state, you know, community college and universities. So um, uh, we aren't necessarily getting students that are always um, primed to be in art school. <laughs> so it's really the first two years are where we sort of get them ready for their, um, the next, you know, part of their education. Yeah. I, it, I mean, to that point, like thinking about the challenges of working with first year students, what they previously had access to, um, 
at Suffolk, you know, there's sort of this great divide between students who um, who have been privileged to have access to technology in their classrooms, as well as, um, you know, sort of limitless supplies, um, and students who are, who haven't, the, the, you know, the have-nots, and mm-hmm. um, making a level playing field for them in the classroom, and keeping them engaged, um, but also making sure that they, they have access to all of the resources that we're going to be introducing when they're not in our classroom and what that looks like. And I think one of the ways that I know you and I have discussed that we first approach it um, is from, from a human you know, standpoint. Do our students have what they need? And looking at clauses that can be added to our syllabi and um, you know, that address basic life needs first, um, having enough to eat and a place to sleep and a list of resources for who they can contact if they don't. And I think that establishing ourselves as somebody, not just a professor, but somebody who's going to be helping them prepare for life um, and wanting to help them meet those life skills really creates that level playing field where where then learning can happen. Absolutely. I um, At UMBC, I have a really similar population in the foundations program and in the first year classes um, where I have some students who did um, completed an AP art portfolio and are really ready to go. Um, And I have some students who are um, barely ready to be in college, you know, first generation college students, they're almost shocked to be there. Um, And they have a lot of kind of day-to-day needs that need getting taken care of before I can um, even really, you know, teach them how to use tools in a basic way, let alone think abstractly and critically and across media. Um, so yeah, but however, I think that that's one of the real gifts they end up getting, um, by choosing to, you know, study art is to, um, sort of have this broader way of looking at the world to learn to kind of, you know, look deeply and think and to have to have, um, you know, critiques, to have conversations with other students about their work, um, I think is a huge social challenge, but really important. Yeah, learning to dialogue meaningfully with others um, in a way that's sincere, um, also learning to take feedback and how to use that feedback as part of a creative process or even a solution-seeking process is really valuable. Even the concept of of a deadline and how important it is to hold a student to that deadline is definitely a first year challenge for sure, but one that's so meaningful to them going forward just in terms of preparation. Right, and just for general sort of, um, you know, success further on in their college career, whatever they end up majoring in. Um, But it is a real challenge. You had mentioned that sometimes you have students that are worried about deportation or family members facing issues around um, immigration, housing insecurity, food insecurity. I mean, that's, those are real deeply stressful things. <laughs> and like it, it, some days I feel like, well, yeah, okay. If you can't show up fully to 
critique yeah. your grayscale project. All right. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, flexibility and an understanding that has to, you know, come into play on our part for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, those circumstances. And also sort of 2018-ish when students were presenting themselves to me and some other faculty privately about those circumstances that they were facing. Mm-hmm. We formed a club and they were, you know, we just sort of rallied behind um, empowering them through activism if they felt mm-hmm. comfortable to take that stance or the, um, being an, an anonymous activist, their research, right, which is such an important part of what we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, really learning about what future candidates might stand for, local candidates providing, you know, they could use their art skills to create flyers to leave on campus and then um, talking about how to incorporate political art into um, class projects as well to you know for to give them a voice when they didn't have any yeah and the kind of the power of um, having control over visual elements I think that was that's actually how I met Karen um, was through a panel at fate where I talked about um, a project that I do in a 2D design class that I teach where we research the history of like political posters and I use the project as a way to teach color um, and even use like Albers color mixing theory. Um, but uh, in the end, everyone makes a poster about something they care about that gets put in a public hallway um, in the school. So yeah, the sort of like... Um, teaching how powerful it can be to have control of uh like visual elements and then to use a public platform it's really important i was at that panel Uh (laughs) it was fantastic and inspiring and karen was um a fantastic chair for the panel and it reminded me um you know just sort of the importance of even in um i want to the foundation classes where maybe the students are, aren't expecting to encounter work with content, right, where they might be focusing mm-hmm. on learning form um, yes. and principles, like how much more meaningful the work becomes when it is rooted in something that has value like that for them. Um, I, I think can be really one of the most powerful learning experiences they can have. One of the projects after I was inspired by that panel that I went back and did with my students in drawing one, um, we worked in virtual reality to engage with um, Rachel Rossin's Man Mask, um, which is this beautiful landscape of um, video games that are um, that have all of the violence removed, and it's sort of the absence is shocking enough to make you realize just how prevalent violence is in the games um, that students are typically engaging with. And then uh, we looked at Ali Aslami's Death Tolls experience, which um, is this virtual reality. It once was a game, which then um, was reformatted to be more of an experience where you're encountering um, body bags that are... um, conveying the data of significant losses of life um, in contemporary wars um, moving from Europe through the Middle East. 
And we talked about the success of that piece being rooted in the data and having, you know, that, you know, you're seeing 70,000 body bags and the impact of seeing that versus reading it. Um, mm. And the students were working in um, creating drawings that were responding to data specific research about topics that uh, much of the work had to do, um, I would say, with the environment was a specific concern, especially um, out on the East End of New York. Um, mm. Students are you know, really concerned about drinking water and um, erosion due to climate change um, with rising sea levels um, that semester. And I think that that was an opportunity for the students to see how um, high tech, something like virtual reality can be informant and a powerful tool, but then also that creating something um, like a visualization through, um, like a data visualization drawing can be just as impactful. So they sort of were on both ends of the spectrum with the analog and high tech technology there. I love how that connects back to your studio practice because I think you have um, several examples of like drawing as a way to process personal data, you know? Um, and I love that idea of kind of in these kinds of classes where I think one of the other things we talked about is that our students, rightly so, really want to come in and kind of like learn a hard skill that they can translate into a job immediately, right? And we are tasked with like talking about how those forms relate to the world and relate to content and how they communicate. So I love that you're sort of having them look at VR work, but then return to an analog drawing process so that they're really kind of getting at the content that they're reprocessing, right? And and starting to think about how form engages with that in different ways. Yeah, I try and talk to them a lot about creating a multimedia circuit. Um, wow. It's something like even in this project that I'm currently working on now, my sabbatical, I'm creating work about plastics in the environment. And it's this incredibly elaborate um, handmade um, installation, right, which is something that I bring into the 3D classroom and talking about, you know, what that looks like in terms of craft, but then um, learning to actually create VR in response to that so that the viewer, you know, it's, it's sort of hit on, on a multitude of senses um, mm -hmm. and to all of that awareness, um, but again, always rooted in research. And one of the most I want to say um, powerful experience, like learning experience I had in the classroom um, was in my honors drawing. We collaborated with the honors sociology sexuality students, mm -hmm. um, which there's definitely a lot of laughing and nervous laughing <laughs> when <laughs> students handed over their research. Um, uh -huh. Some of it were, was, um, you know, opinions about birth control, um, or what constituted losing virginity, um, and others were more serious, like um, suicide rates within the LGBT community. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they took a look at that data that the students had, you know, researched themselves some secondary sources, and then they were, you know, it comes back to this idea again of empowerment and creating across multiple platforms, you know, where first the students created not... Um, data visualizations like pie charts, but like content fueled um, imagery that conveyed that data 
They were looking at artists like um, Mona Chalabi specifically, you know, for inspiration. And then once they had this artwork created, discussing how to disseminate that em- information, getting mm-hmm. the work, um, holding an open panel workshop with both the researchers and the artists, the students were able to uh, publish their artwork. Um, onto the website that I curate, which is called the Verge Art Space, um, which is a platform, an online art gallery, if you will, for socially engaged art. And when the students were selecting these organizations that they wanted to present them to, they had to think about who they wanted, where their voice was, what the message was that they were conveying, and who was best to hear it. Because in the art class, we learned that it's you're not always looking to share the work with people that have your viewpoint, um, that maybe you want to share your work, even if it means pushback, with people who might be resistant to hear what you have to say, um, mm-hmm. but that you're doing it in a peaceful way that can inspire conversation um, through art. I'm curious, that's one of the things that we talked about um, on the panel a little bit with Karen, and that's something that I think about a lot Um just even within the classroom, right? It, we don't always um, agree. And because I have a project too where students are like researching and then making these public posters about um, what they care about. So it can be very broad. Sometimes it's the environment. Sometimes it's, um, you know, about the rates of uh, trans women of color that have been killed in the last year. Um, and sometimes they make very clear um, uh you know, political statements about candidates, but how to sort of um, manage that conversation even within the classroom. And I think like in, um, in terms of my class in the critique, it's a place where if it's, if it's, you know, sort of tightly structured, it's a place where we can sort of respond to um, all of the kind of complications that might arise Um, (laughs) uh, you know, but also sort of really make sure that, um, everyone has, uh, a voice, right. And that the people that maybe feel like they don't often get to have a voice can have an even stronger voice in that kind of space. Well, and I think it's also teaching the students that they can be like, we often talk about having a safe space for our students. Uh Um, but I think in this conversation, it's also teaching our students to, um, feel brave to put uh-huh. their out there and so, to kind of have a civil like what it means to have a civil discourse right like what it means to actually be able to um, discuss things while not making people feel unsafe I think it's yeah. such an essential part you know we we're sort of linking in this theme of teaching um, at institutions where we're part of the art community but it's not an art school and I think in some ways, this is the benefit of students attending um, an institution such as ours, because it's a little bit more aligned with the real world <laughs> uh-huh. and coming up against systems of power that aren't familiar or comfortable with the art world um, and just learning to be, you know, use um, like not just the image as expression, but having access to the concrete research that you've done um, and the confidence built in, whether through its analog media or uh, more high-tech media, to have a a clear voice, even if that voice um, goes against 
social norms. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think at my university, students are also really supported in that because they are um, hopefully kind of, you know, reading about social histories um, and also learning about how data works for other areas, you know, um, they're learning about data through the lens of sociology, through the lens of social sciences. Um, so it's kind of like this fabulous um, potential content um, to get folded into our classroom. Of course, in the first semester, everything's new and overwhelming. <laughs> so, we're, um, But one of the challenging but also great things, and I'm sure you also um, have this, is that in our first year program, we have a few classes that are open to non-majors. And um, that gets back to the question we were talking about before in terms of like a kind of skill and experience divide, but it also is this wonderful opportunity to fold in um, this other kind of breadth of experience um, students are coming in with. Uh, so I love having biology majors in my non-majors classes and computer science majors because they, um, ha you know, bring us a different kind of language into the classroom that's um, incredibly rich and um, great. And then I also love challenging them to make socially engaged artwork and sometimes they're ready for it and sometimes they're not. Um, but yeah. I love um, before you were talking about the idea of a lens. Um, and thinking about the students who are coming from other disciplines as majors and um, how that lens can become a perspective for them. Um, so like a lens of perspective, but also lens is something we talk about a lot in the art classroom, whether it be the visual lens of our eye, but also the lenses that we use in terms of technology, whether it's the lens of a 3D scanner or an analog camera obscura. These are, you know, thinking about the lens is an important concept um, in the foundations classroom. And, and tying that also to the idea of um, the screen, which is something that we've also, um, uh, you and I have both discussed as something that sort of mediates a lot of what our students are learning and processing, whether it's um, a metaphorical screen um, of experience that maybe they, you know, sometimes the students have it access to um, because they're on the peripheral view of it or um, like screens that the students are printing on in terms of printmaking um, or processing their work through um, technology such as their phone screen. And the lens and screens are really integral parts of vocabulary, I think, in the foundation's art classroom. Absolutely. And part of talking about how experience is mediated. Um, and I, in the 2D design class I teach, I haven't really talked a lot about that. I also teach uh, time-based media and video and sound, but in 2D design is a challenging class because I'm often asking students who want to leap into InDesign to just like use an X-Acto knife and glue and pencils, you know? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, and to sort of draw that correlation to, I mean, first of all, it's the rectangle, but to also kind of, um, make sure that projects work across those kind of concepts and to convey to students who might be film majors who are also sitting next to a graphic design major, um, this kind of, we do have this kind of common organizing factor of the screen. They might be in different sizes, right? And the sort of underlying grid and um, how 
those design spaces might be, you know, I have to kind of ask them to slow down and just uh, design for one um, rectangle, <laughs> but, and, right. But, um, but yes, to sort of think of um, the screen as not only a kind of, um, or a lens as not only a kind of thing through which we project uh, meaning and uh, decode sign systems, but um, also as the sort of space they're, they're totally living in and designing for. I love hearing you say um, slow down also, because I think the concept of making slow art in this very fast moving mm -hmm. um, mediated world is really critical. Um, and last December, um, Sarah and I were part of um, the FATE regional event Screen Grab, um, which I put on at Wayfarers and invited Sarah to speak with other foundation art educators. Um, and we sort of all got together and it was this wonderful evening of discussing what we were experiencing in our own practice. Um, and also in terms of, um, I'm gonna say trends in teaching and what we were observing in our classrooms. Um, and Sarah gave an incredible artist talk um, about her own work yeah. and <laughs> off, um, discussing projects. Um, including the one where you incorporated Twitter as sort of a real-time use of the screen in the classroom too. And I just think that you're very thoughtful in terms of uh, engaging students' awareness of the potential of all of these things that they don't necessarily realize they have or they do realize they have um, access to immediately but don't know how to use it meaningfully. And I, and I and I felt very inspired that night. Um, yeah, thank you. That um, that was a totally great event. It was nice to, I think I rarely get the chance to give a talk about my own studio practice and how that relates to pedagogy. Um, and uh, yes, I have projects in several of my classes where the content of the class is relatively analog, like um, a history of new media art or 2G design, as I discussed, um, and uh, time-based media, but I, I have, I add in a component where we're um, posting reading responses over Twitter and we're all following it. And then we're talking about what it means to compress text into a set number of characters and what it means to sort of speak in public and what it means to tag someone and then get an immediate response and to sort of hold that up against other previous media environments where there were more layers of work to get to sort of at somebody um, and uh, similar stuff with Instagram and posting um, visual images. And I think the real key to that is to just sort of like find a way to reprocess the effects of those spaces um, as a group and to have students kind of reflectively write and to get them to really hold up these different um these sort of models of communication that they take for granted, like, and, and truly affect their lives, right? Like social media is like very interwoven in their personal lives, um, but to sort of remove it a little bit and to see them as um, these, you know, media objects and tools and to talk about their social effects and then to elevate something like drawing um, to the same level as like a media object and a tool and talk about its effect and to try to sort of, you know, get at um, how these things communicate differently and what their effects are. Um, what I loved about the screen grab thing was that you also had us, I gave a talk and we had this really great conversation with the other participants. And then you 
had us make screen prints. So we like then <laughs> learned like a kind of simple screen printing technique and we all sort of sat together and made something together, which was like, we were all, we're all educators. So we are often with groups of people making things, but usually I think in our own practices, we all sort of work alone. So it was just really great to be like, actually making um, our own stuff and kind of thinking about how to make these things um, and learning a new skill together. I'm so glad you felt that way. (laughs) Yeah. And, and just to get, you know, like almost circling back to the beginning of our conversation, like the value of being a part of a community, the community of artist educators and being inspired and nurtured by that environment um, is really critical. um, I think in contemporary education and, at, you know, we discussed when we finished that it's a goal of ours for 2020 to put on another such event. Yes, hopefully we can put together another um, fade event in uh, New York and Brooklyn, probably. Yeah, it'd be great. Be with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. I think that was a good conversation. Yeah, I, I, I feel sort of all invigorated again um, for getting back into the classroom in the spring semester. It was really, I, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thanks, Sarah. Thanks, thanks Karen. Sarah. Thanks, Karen.